If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with crunch. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, and this is the first History Extra podcast for May 2012. Coming up this week, we have... Shakespeare could draw on Hollenshed for his characters, but also for quite a lot of local colour. That was Pauline Accused talking about Shakespeare's Richard III. Our ancestors are constantly in a negotiation against the conditions under which they were, you know, held by their lords. That was Michael Wood on the history of ordinary people in Britain. So this podcast comes to you from the team behind BBC History magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of that on our website, historyextra.com. We're also available digitally. You can purchase our Kindle edition from the Amazon website and our new iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. More information at historyextra.com forward slash iPad. Plus, as usual, you'll find us on facebook.com slash historyextra or twitter.com slash historyextra. Dr Pauline Hughes is a fellow and tutor in English Literature at Jesus College, Oxford University. Lately she's been working on the Hollenshed Project, which has been producing a parallel text version of two editions of the late 16th century chronicles that were harvested by Shakespeare for his history plays. In this year of the World Shakespeare Festival, this is an important project. So the first question I asked Paulina was, where did Shakespeare get his information from? Shakespeare's principal source for his history plays was a work called Hollenshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland and Ireland. We know that um, and we know that he often supplemented Hollenshed's Chronicles uh, by looking at some of the other chronicles and other history plays by his predecessors. But Hollenshed was the main source for all the history plays and in fact also for some of the tragedies such as Macbeth and King Lear. Hollenshed um, was a very useful source for both Shakespeare and his contemporaries. In fact, it was the book that gave rise to more early modern plays than any other work, whether ancient or contemporary. 
it was useful because it provided not only a very detailed narrative of events, but also um, descriptions of England, Scotland and Ireland, which meant that Shakespeare could draw on the on Hollandshed for his characters, but also for quite a lot of local colour. And that would be that w- that was something that he did. We remember, for instance, the scene in Henry V with the representatives of the various nations of Britain. We ought to just be clear: who was Hollandshed? What are his chronicles? Hollandshed's chronicles was a major historical undertaking. But before I tell you exactly what's in it, I should stress that Raphael Hollandshed, by whose name they are known was not the sole begetter of the Chronicles. It's a convention to refer to them by his name, but in fact, the Chronicles were a collaborative venture. The first edition of the Chronicles, which appeared in 1577, uh, was coordinated by Hollandshed, but there were several other contributors. The second edition, which appeared in 1587, was coordinated by a man called Abram Fleming, Again, several contributors. By that time, Hollenshed himself had been dead for several, for several years. The Chronicles, both editions, um, were called Chronicles of England, Scotland and Ireland. They consisted of the history of the three kingdoms from their foundation pretty much to the present day, but in addition to the narrative history, there were also descriptions of each. And the title description actually appeared in each section of the chronicle. By description, they meant um, the uh, geography, topography, manners, um, natural resources of each of the kingdoms. This meant that the reader could cross-reference the history of each of the kingdoms with its geography. And is each, uh, and it starts with mythology and classical history back in the dawns of time when, when they didn't really have anything particular to go on? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, on the one hand, the story of the mythic foundation of Britain is being retailed, but on the other hand, of course, uh, there is extensive reliance on classical sources which tell of the Roman conquest of Britain. So Hollenshed himself rely, Hollenshed chronicles rely of, on a very rich set of sources. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the, you, we've got the three kingdoms, England, Ireland and Scotland, and the, the stories are being told in parallel, are they, within the chronicles? Yes, in separate volumes. One of the things that um, literary scholars used to think about Shakespeare's use of Hollenshed was that whereas the Chronicle provided a fairly humdrum narrative of events, it was Shakespeare who somehow refined it and made it more ambiguous and ambivalent, more complex. This is not true, and over the last 20 years or so, both literary scholars and historians have begun to acknowledge the complexity of the narrative that we find in Hollenshed itself. Now, that is a function of the complex genesis of the Chronicles. The Chronicles had originally been conceived not as a book about England, Scotland and Ireland at all. 
In fact, it was conceived as a universal history from the um, creation of the world until the present day. In the event that plan had fallen through for lack of funds, but we have to bear in mind that sort of broad origin um, of the chronicles. So, what was what was the purpose of these chronicles? What were the, what were the Hollinshed and his and his and his team of contributors trying to do? Why were they writing this? Why were they producing this this tome? The writing of chronicles was flourishing in the period, but there was nothing like Hollinshed before it. Earlier chronicles tended to be obviously briefer, but they did not engage with the whole of the Atlantic archipelago. And although, of course, the creation of United Britain, of one country of the British Isles, um, was not to happen until 1603 and the accession of James um, VI of Scotland to the English throne, um, there was a developing sense of the British Isle as a unity, of a distinctive British identity. So I think that we should understand the decision of Hollinshed and the publishers, the original edition, to focus on the British Isles in that way. Obviously, their object was to retell the story of England, but also to allow the reader to cross-reference the story of England with that of Ireland, which by then was um, part of, um, you know, it was England and Ireland, but it was under the jurisdiction of the English crown. And of course, there were important connections with Scotland. I mean, the, 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 the um, question of whether Scotland should accept English suzerainty or not was something that exercised contemporaries, not least because the major claimant to the English throne and one, the most controversial one was Mary Stuart, who was in captivity, in English captivity, um, since well before the first edition was published. So these chronicles came out in 1577 and 1587. Did they attract popular interest? Were lots of people reading them? Presumably they must have been very expensive well, to produce. Well, they, they couldn't have been read by the so-called popular audience mm. precisely because they were, they were published in the largest format available for a book in the period. They were issued in folio. And I should perhaps say that the second edition numbered as many as 3.5 million words. So it was obvious they were mammoth tomes. Mm. On the other hand, our investigation of the readership suggests that actually a lot of people were familiar to them. And we also need to remember that in the period, a lot of reading aloud went on. Plus, people um, borrowed books. Um, some of them would have been found in college, university libraries. So, although not as influential as, as say, Fox's Book of Marches, for which there was a more official distribution network, they were still fairly well known, and they influenced later chroniclers and, and as I mentioned, plays. Mm. Talking about Hollinshed's chronicles, you've been working on a, on a research project on the chronicles for some time now. What, what have you been trying to do and what sort of results have, have been coming up? Well, one of the first things that we tried to do was to make the text of the chronicles um, easily accessible. And in fact, they, are, they have now been uploaded onto a website, which we've created at Oxford 
university. What this particular website does is allow anyone, they're publicly accessible, to look at the texts of the first and second editions of the Chronicles and also at the click of the mouse to compare them. So you can see uh, not only, obviously, the, the, the edit bits, but also where the earlier text was in any way revised. Now, why is that important and why did we try to do that? That is because we set out to um, create a volume of essays, to edit a volume of essays which would um, provide a comprehensive reassessment of the Chronicles and not just as a source for Shakespeare and other playwrights, but also as a major um, historiographical undertaking which really quite lastingly redefined what Englishmen and Scots and the Irish made of their, um, themselves, of their history, of, of their countries. And in order to do that, you really have to be able to compare the versions, not least to assess, for instance, the impact of censorship or the changing priorities in the later 1580s. Um, so in devising the volume of essays, which will look at various aspects of the Chronicles, we wanted to go back to basics, and nobody has done that before. So we, tried, we commissioned essays which would trace precisely who wrote the Chronicles, who financed them, um, the size of the editions, the likely price and circulation. What was the significance of censorship? The censorship of the first edition of 1577 was less substantial than of the second one. But again, there were particular reasons why the Privy Council wanted to have a look at the Chronicles. And then there is the question of the sources of Holinshed. I've already alluded to the fact that um, the Chronicles often reprinted earlier chronicles, texts of earlier chronicles. They also reprinted uh, several contemporary pamphlets. Um, but this is not to say that the, that the men who collaborated on the chronicles were unlearned. In fact, so far as we know, of the two teams who worked on the chronicles, only one, John Stowe, was not had not been to university. And he was one of the most... Um, highly respected antiquarians of the period. So they were all very learned, they were all very knowledgeable, and the reading that had gone into the making of the Chronicles was simply extraordinary. They read classical sources, continental ones, and a whole range of uh, materials which they really genuinely tried to keep as accurate as possible. So you get, you get the sense. You, you, we've talked about the censorship of, of of the chronicles and the you know sort of the Tudor state intervening. So you kind of get the sense that history pervades the period. That people are very much have the past in their minds, and they're particularly worried. You know, is the Elizabethan time. You know, we're not sure what, how the succession is going to pan out. So everyone's worried about what's going to happen next, and they're looking back and trying to justify things. Is is it? Is that is that fair to think that, that the whole period people are just constantly looking backwards and trying to find uh, parallels and 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 you know, positions that they can adopt, which help them explain what's happening today? Uh, absolutely true. Um, in the early modern period, as indeed before, um, it was inconceivable to think about the present and the future without reference to the past, and the 
two major paths that would have been always invoked, or three, let's say, the two would be ancient Rome and medieval England. Um, I mentioned three because um, scripture, Old Testament history would also sometimes be referred to, but in, in relation to solving current problems, it was almost always the history of ancient Rome and of medieval England. Um, the idea was that by looking to the past, you can find solutions to the present. You can understand what is happening. And in fact, in the debate about the succession to Elizabeth, the past was repeatedly invoked. Obviously, when Elizabeth first came to the throne in 1558, everyone assumed that with Elizabeth being a young woman, she would marry and procreate and in this way secure succession by uh, bearing children. That, as we know, is not what happened. But already at that early date, when she was being pressed to marry, earlier examples, historical examples were invoked. Um, during her coronation procession through the city of London in January 1559, she was presented with a series of pageants or little playlets um, and the first one of them was entitled The Union of Lancaster and York and showed her uh, the figures of her grandfather and grandmother, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, her parents, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and below there was a figure of the solitary Elizabeth. And the message of that particular pageant was fairly clear. She should get married, as did her grandparents and parents, to secure... Um, the peaceful future of the country. When that did not happen, uh, polemical authors, as well as members of the regimes of, of, of the regime themselves, were coming up with different um, historical parallels, partly to pressure Elizabeth to settle the succession, especially when she was past marriage and past childbearing, uh, but also to assess who would have the strongest right to the throne. And in this respect, of course, the inclusion of the Scottish Chronicle in Hollandshed was quite significant because by 1587, when the, sec when the second edition started circulating, was released onto the market, James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary Stuart, was the strongest claimant and anyone who would read the chronicles would be able to work it out. But, the question, but if you simply follow this line, the question arises, does the succession go simply by blood or are there different ways of acceding to the throne? And of course the chronicles provided a massive record of irregular successions the deposition of Richard II, the murder of the princes by Richard III, the deposition of Edward II in favour of his son, any number of rebellions and weak kings. And contemporaries would have drawn quite contrary inferences from that record of events. For example, should we treat the deposition of Richard II as in some way legitimate and Henry IV as the rightful king or not? The striking feature of the second edition of Hollandshed is that in the margin, 
against the um, against the section which deals with the accession of Henry IV, there are words Henry IV elected king. So it would suggest that you you become king not by blood, but by the decision of the state, perhaps the parliament, perhaps um, wider population. Okay, in conclusion, um, now that we know that Shakespeare was using Holinshed and other chronicles so much for, for the basis of his characterization and to develop his, the themes that he was exploring, should that make us think more or less of Shakespeare? Should it make us... Uh, when we when we when we talk about the genius of Shakespeare, should we also be talking about the genius of Holinshed and, and his team uh, to, to to you know to, to make it clear that that perhaps Shakespeare uh, was was building on the on the works of others? We should think of the genius of both the Holinshed team and Shakespeare, but perhaps rather than assessing the geniuses of either with some kind of Geigermeter, I think it's more fruitful to consider what Holinshed offered to Shakespeare and his contemporaries, and also to try to assess the drift of Shakespeare's plays by comparing them with the sources and by looking at what his contemporaries were making of the same material. And when, essentially the only way people today access Holinshed is by reading the bits and pieces that appear at the back of editions of Shakespeare, usually they're extracts. But obviously when Shakespeare was reading Holinshed, he had before him the whole massive tomes of the edition. He wasn't looking at a selection concocted by, uh, for, uh, by, uh, by someone specifically. You know, here, is, here are the good bits to be used by Shakespeare. And he and the other readers would have been able easily to cross-reference what was elsewhere in the Chronicles. Again, let me give you an example. We talked about the deposition of Richard II or Edward II as they are presented in Holinshed, and of course Shakespeare dramatizes the fall of Richard and the rise of Bolingbroke, Henry IV. But for contemporary readers for whom drawing parallels and comparing the past and the present, it would have been entirely natural to look to the Scottish, Scottish Chronicle, which related the deposition of Mary Stuart in favour of her son. They would have seen similarity, especially perhaps with what happens to Edward II, who is forced to abdicate in favour of um, his son, Edward III. And we know that in, in just a few years before the publication of the second edition of Hollandshed, in 1583, Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's secretary, th threatened James about his conduct and uh, essentially told him that his subjects might well rebel against him, and he did invoke the parallel of Edward II. So drawing parallels was something that everyone, especially those who were educated, did. That was Paulina Cuse. You can read a feature by her on Holinshed and Richard III in the May issue of BBC History magazine. The website for the Holinshed project is www.cems.ox.ac.uk forward slash Holinshed. And Dr Cuse has also co-edited the Oxford Handbook to Holinshed's Chronicles, which was published later this year by OUP. 
Michael Wood is one of Britain's best-known history broadcasters. Over his 30-year career, he has produced over 100 documentaries on a wide range of historical subjects. He returns to BBC Two this month with the first episode of his new eight-part series, The Great British Story. BBC History magazine's Rob Attar visited him at his production company to find out what we can expect from these programmes. Okay, so uh, Michael, I'll just ask you first of all, how did the idea for this new series come about? Well, it all started with a series that we did uh, um, a year or so ago on on the BBC, which was called The Story of England, or English Story, which was taking one village through the whole of English history, which was Kibworth in Leicestershire. And um, we, we took the the story from the bottom up rather than the top down. So it was the story of the people, not of the rulers. Uh, it's, as it were, from the provinces or, you know, it's not from the centre. Mm. The story isn't told from Buckingham Palace, it's told from the ordinary people's point of view as the shapers of their own history, you know, through the life of the medieval peasant and civil war, you know, peasants revolt, the industrial revolution, the canals, the railways, the wars and so on. And we did it with the help of the community. The community in Kibworth did test digs all across their village. They helped with uh, the documents. They went down to Kew to read their own poor law accounts, which had probably not even been open since the the 19th century. And we also asked the villagers to read the, the texts of their own history rather than getting actors to do it. And that was very moving. The best ones, once we got into the swing of it, were really fantastically powerful as ordinary people's voices reading, you know, stuff from the Civil War or the Black Death and so on. So that idea was that idea, if you like, and it went out and was, we got wonderful reception from the audience and one or two of the press said it was the most innovative history series ever on television. And as a result, the BBC then said, that was fantastic, could you do more of the same, but all the way across the UK? And we had actually originally thought of doing a, um, you know, it was scheduled originally, it was planned as 10 episodes, and we did. We had actually produced an alternative version, which had 10, ten different places across the UK. Um, but this has really snowballed, and uh, uh, we've been filming for the last seven or eight months, right the way from Cornwall to... Uh, the north of Scotland, from the East Anglian wool towns to West Wales, uh, to Northern Ireland, uh, and even a little bit of filming in in Aero, because of course you can't tell the history of Britain without telling, you know, involving Aero as well. And uh, and again, it's the ordinary people's tale, really. That's that's the plan, and it's the ordinary people's tale, inevitably in the time, because it only runs for eight weeks homing in on certain great moments of transformation in our history from the Roman period until now, you know, the end of the Roman period until now. So, um, you know, you take the Black Death or the Reformation or the civil wars in the plural across Britain or Industrial Revolution and you, you see how it felt in Govan or in the Black Country Uh, or in Belfast, you take the civil wars and you see what it felt like to the people of Elgin in the north of Scotland or in, um, uh, you know, in Ireland or in Cornwall. You know, we've tried to often tell narratives that are not part of the mainstream narrative. You know, the Cornish narrative, for instance, is very much forgotten by Anglo-centric historians, but Cornwall's distinctive identity... 
and lasted very late. You know, they marched an army to London in 1497 and they inflicted the biggest defeat on Parliament in the Civil War, you know. So there's a, these are very interesting ways of opening up new ways of seeing, I think. And, uh, and part of the thing is the narrative is not told from the places where you normally see the grand narrative of British history, you know, Buckingham Palace and the Westminster Abbey and Parliament and London. And, uh, you know, this is told from the Govan and Corby and Toxteth and Croxteth and Moss Side and the Black Country and so on. And what advantages do you think that approach gives you? Uh, it gives you um, a much more panoramic sense of what's actually going on. And, uh, um, uh, you know, and it matches more what historians are writing now about uh, our history. You know, our history has been so southeastern centric for so long. Uh, if you take the Civil War, for example, you know, I was brought up calling it the English Civil War or the English Revolution. Um, it now tends to be called the British Civil Wars, or even in, in Ireland now the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, um, meaning Ireland, Scotland and England, England and stroke Wales. You know. So these perspectives are the new perspectives, if you like, and um, uh, you gain a fantastic amount from standing outside the southeast and looking, turning the map round. I always remember um, when I was a student, reading Fernand Braudel's book on the Mediterranean, and he's got this great map where the Mediterranean is turned upside down, so the Sahara is, you know, bulks over the top of the Mediterranean, and the, the strip of Italy and Greece to Spain is at the bottom, and you understand from the turning over of the map that the climate of the Sahara is what dominates the Mediterranean in its life, and, and um, turning the map round has great advantages you know you turn the map of the Irish Sea round and you um, you put um, Liverpool and the Wirral at the top and Dublin at the bottom uh, then you see that the Irish Sea through history has been almost like a kind of free trade zone and a zone of communication where the people of Liverpool and Dublin and Belfast and North Wales and South Scotland have had more in common with each other than they did with London um, and, of course, these lessons take you right back into the Dark Ages. You know, one of the things we've done in the first episode is look at these transformations that are happening in the, in the Irish Sea Zone, you know, the kind of Welsh in the Age of Saints, Columba and Patrick and Cornwall, and you see how Roman civilization and Latin culture and the Latin language and uh, Christianity has survived in that great belt from Govan Church in Glasgow, you know, one of the greatest collections of Dark Age sculpture in Britain. Un unbeknown to most people and you know Northern Ireland and Wales and Cornwall these links are very powerful around there seeing it from that perspective and seeing the ancestors of the English if I dare put it that way the Anglo-Saxons as impoverished Im immigrants on the fringe of the, the collapsed eastern provinces of Roman Britain uh, it gives you a great perspective so I think for anybody who's interested in history new points of view, standing outside the, 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 the old narrative and looking at it from a turning the map round is a really, really great thing to do. Do you think it also benefits from moving away from this idea of like the great men of history and the big wars, and which is what you often get in popular history? Yes, I, I think it does, and, and it was one of the strong points of Kibworth, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, the, when you look at these great transformations in our history, uh, the people have been involved at a very early stage. You know, the people were involved in the Barons Rising of the 1260s, and um, peasant literacy was very widespread in the 14th century. The Peasants' Revolt uh, 
they trans the, the rebels communicated by using written letters, just as the levelers did, or the Lollards did, and the um, you know the Luddites did, and the Talpuddle Martyrs, and those kind of people, and the the um, the action of the people themselves has been a major transfiguring force in our history, you know, and um, it doesn't always happen from the top down. It, it happens from from the bottom up, and. Uh, um, you know, it's a truism, but uh, the Great Britain series voted Churchill as the greatest Britain, as if somehow Churchill won the war, but of course it was the British people who won the war. Um, so how, how easy was it to try and meld together the, the various stories of the different constituent parts of the United Kingdom, because they often have quite separate histories. Yeah, yeah. How did you manage to get that into one narrative? Well, they have very different histories, of course, and they continue to do so, and we're quite aware that we're making these films at a time when, you know, Scottish independence is being widely mooted, as Welsh, even regional independence, mm. you know, the North, Cornish movement's very strong, you know, and these are very, very ancient identities, and it's one of the things that interests us a lot in this series, you know, uh, um, the persistence of these identities. Uh, uh, so nobody's trying to in impose a, a false construction on this. All we're saying is really that the, 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 there have been many, and still are many, uh, fascinating distinctive regional and cultural identities within the British Isles, but our destinies have been intertwined by history. Um, the Union of 1603, the Union of 1707, the Union after 1801, when of course Ireland until 1922 was part of Britain, you know, people forget this, you know. But, um, um, so we're, we're looking at the interplay of process, and that's a difficult thing to do on telly, because telly is a simple medium, you know, it's not yeah. a great medium for analysis, it's great at telling stories. And when, they, when actually the stories are quite complicated, and these parallel lines running, you know, in the dark ages from, completely different narratives in the Clyde Valley and, you know, Dalriada and southern Wales and Cornwall to the narratives in East Anglia or Northumbria, you know. But um, uh, teasing the threads between them and showing how, how these things link up is, you know, one thing we hope telly can do. But I must say, having made the whole series in uh, less than a year, and we're still making it, um, it's uh, like juggling plates in the air. I've never before made a series, and I've now made more than a hundred history documentaries on telly. I've never before made a series where I literally am um, shooting scenes, thinking that will fit in that part of the 17th century, uh, 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 but I'm not quite sure how, you know, or I'll shoot that thinking the rough idea I've got of the Viking period, it'll fit in there. Um, it, it simply has not been possible to script, let alone to recce, in, in detail, you know. I mean, obviously I've got ideas of how the shows will come together, but you, it's um, a very different matter from the old-fashioned way of filmmaking. You know, dear old Simon Sharma had five years to make his series, you know, and, uh, and filmically it was relatively simple in the sense that it was a presenter-led film, you see, whereas these, these films have the communities 
intertwining you know the first episode for example there's a massive community dig in Long Melford there's a big involvement of volunteers in Caerleon in Wales there's communal dig up in Elgin in Scotland there's a fantastic communal dig with inter inner city kids in uh, Borough Hill in Leicestershire the, 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 the massive community sponsored uh, excavation of Sedgeford in Norfolk which is just a remarkable community phenomenon run by the community itself you know, many other different engagements of the people with their history in all sorts of ways. You know, the Glasgow Reminiscence Group, who are the Govan Reminiscence Group, sorry, who are recovering the history of the oral history and documentary history of the rise of Govan as a shipyard in the 19th century. You know, even tracing their ancestors back to Gaelic speakers in the island of Skye or the Western Isles who came to Govan for work. You know, these levels of um, the, the community's past have to be layered in a f filmmaking, you know, and of course, for a series like this, you need twice as many films and twice as much time. Um, do you think that this kind of series, with the people involved in just the wider public, is a good way to get people more interested in history by focusing on their own localities? Uh, um, yes. Uh, the the biggest things in my experience that people want to know about, there's a huge interest, first of all, in history out there. History is the biggest leisure participation activity in the UK. You know, when you take in museum visits, membership of English Heritage, National Trust, all these things, community groups, reenactment groups, history groups, it's the biggest participation activity, leisure time in the UK. Uh, there's a huge interest out there, especially among the young and among the older segment of the population. And uh, everybody, in my experience, wants to know two things they want to know where do I come from what am I you know my family story who do I think I am that kind of aspect of it where does that link to my community my neighborhood my locality the identity that I espouse as a Geordie or a Scouser or a Brummy or from a black country or a Devonian or whatever that that aspect of it uh, but they also want to know where does do I fit in with the big national narrative you know and um, and of course people have multiple identities we've asked a lot of people in this series you know what you know, who are you? Well, I'm Brummy. Well, I'm this. No, I'm not, you know, I'm Sikh. I'm a Mancunian. I'm, well, I'm a sort of, you know, a red Sikh Mancunian, you know. Um, uh, people have multiple identities. But uh, uh, that's what people want to know, I think. Did you find that the ordinary experience of people throughout the centuries was quite different from the traditional narrative of British history that we have. We have, like, say, the Wars of the Roses, the Tudors, yeah. Civil War. Was that, were those the things that really impacted on their lives, or was it more about agriculture? And yeah, I mean, like your that? working lives are obviously what impacts on you. Um, on great events like the Black Death, of course, or the Norman Conquest, where it impacted on everybody, but the Black Death and things like that, the Great Famine, stuff of that kind, were really massive. But... Um, um, uh, yeah, for most people, I think it's th it's that. But the, the areas where historians are radically revi revising uh, ordinary people's history, of course, is are in questions of education and literacy and participation. And uh, um, you know, there's a wonderful website now for the fine roles project which is david yeah. carpenter which uh, you know anybody who's interested in our medieval past should look at because it's incredible this stuff is all translated and it's they're amazing court cases through the um uh, you know through the whole of the 13th century and you see our, our, our ordinary ancestors not as um dullard peasants plowing the fields but people with aspirations people with ideas people many of them able to use literacy and by the 14th century very large 
large number able to use literacy. You know, with little grammar schools everywhere, and you know, not 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 with the fixed buildings, but you know, um, uh, so and that's how the peasants in the peasants' revolt use letters, or that's why an English literature and and uh, oral culture becomes so strong in the uh, in the vernacular in the 14th century. You know, so I think the underestimation of our ancestors is one of the biggest things that you see. You know, and you've only got to look at the court cases in the in the thousands and thousands of court rolls that survive for the 13th and 14th centuries to see how our ancestors are constantly in a negotiation against the conditions under which they were, you know, held by their lords. You know, and how women played a great role in all this. You know, it's easily forgotten. In Hales Owen, two of the leaders of the peasants' groups in the one in the 13th and one in the 14th century, both women, you know. Um, so um, uh, I think that sense of the ordinary people's uh, creativity and um, uh, initiative is, is a, a really, really uh, growing thing, and literacy is an important part of it. Why do you think these people have been quite invisible in popular and academic history? Well, the rulers write the history. The rulers write the history. You've only got to look at the official historiography of the Peasants' Revolt, you know, the, the, for the for the for the ruling class, it was uh, it wasn't the system that w- it was wrong. It was a bunch of ill-disciplined hoodlums who, you know, r- rioted and murdered and and so on. You know, when you actually penetrate behind the rhetoric of the ruling class's historiography, you see, of course, that uh, they did have a program, and that, uh, um, however, they were represented. You know, they used letters, and they um, uh, many of the things they fought for. You know, a clear program about the abolition of serfdom and so on came to pass in a piecemeal way over the next few decades you know so um history is always told from until recently has always been told from the side of the the rulers i think and that's that's an important thing um and the sides of the winners you know you've only got to look at the you know history the historical writing on the reformation i was brought up believing that the protestant reformation was consensual and that uh, catholicism was mumbo jumbo superstition everything else and then you get the great modern historians um uh, Eamon duffy you know the stripping of the altars, the voices of Morbath, Patrick Collinson, Susan Brigden. Um, the, the historiography of the last thirty years has made us totally rethink this. You know, and you read something like the stripping of the altars. You know, it's one of the great modern works on the 16th century and you see how vital that tradition was, it was a traditional society like traditional societies all over the world and so it makes you um, understand better what the English people actually went through over that period of about 70 years where the establishment fought itself almost over um, which way things were going to go you know and that's why his book, Duffy's book about Moorbath, you know, the voices of Moorbath is so great, because the, the, the church warden's book there from the 1520s to the 1570s is this, has the same vicar, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, uh, he has to undergo all the changes of regime. You know, he's a Catholic, an old Catholic, and then they go half and half, and then they go hardline Protestant, and then they go back to being Catholic, then they go back to being Protestant. You don't know what the government's going to ask you to think uh, next week, you know, and uh, his prime duty was to his flock. And in those notebooks, you see how a community responds, you see. So... That's the great thing about history, you know, history is what we make of it. There isn't that one defined, attainable, uh, definitive history of, a past, of, of any period of the past. 
history is only what we in the present make of it and therefore is in a constant state of revaluation and uh, and indeed as time is what we do in our own individual lives we um, uh, you know my view of myself as I was when I was 30 is very different from what my view of myself when I was 30 was when I was 40 you know what I was like when I was 17 you 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 you'd select different things from your past to make sense of your life now at different points in your life. Well, nations do that. So it's not so much the history of the nation, but the histories of the nation, really, because it's so many different stories going on in the same time period. Yeah, I mean, nobody's saying it's... Um, nobody writes... Uh, I suppose you can write a history, you can never write the history, but... Um, um, we're making television programs. It's as simple as that. You know, our job is to be entertaining and accurate, and um, but entertaining and informative. You know, make people think. People can look elsewhere if they want to know more about these subjects. But our duty in a prime time history series is to excite people and make. You know, did you know? You know, add, to add that element of uh, gosh, I never knew that kind of to it. You know. Do you find yourself? discovering things even now that you didn't know when you were making these programs. Oh, man, you're always discovering things, you know. I mean, that's the stuff of life, isn't it? And uh, um, uh, anybody's interested in history or anything, you discover something new every day. So, yeah. And especially as we're dealing with often newly discovered information, you know. The, the community digs that we're doing are just turn up constantly turning up things, you know. The documents are constantly turning up things, things that make you look in a different way at, um, at histories. So if you're engaging with these people with their local history, that, that could then be of help to academic historians working in the field of people who come up with new discoveries all the time. It, it, it certainly helps academic historians and, and the view of the past. You know, for instance, what we've discovered about uh, Roman Long Melford. Mm. The academics couldn't have had access to that information, or what we turned up at Kibworth, you know. But um, more important than that, of course, it engages the people themselves with their history, and that's the really great thing, you know. The schools, we, you know, we were involved with the schools in Kibworth, we were involved in not schools here. Um, that sense of a community getting involved with its past, and it's going to be followed up in this... Um, um, after these shows, with I think the Heritage and Lottery Fund is planning to en to engage with about a hundred projects across the nation. You know, so uh, Kibworth itself received a grant of sixty thousand for a history trail and various other educational things linked to the school. After our programmes, you see, so there's a direct feedback into the people themselves, and uh, um, uh, you know that's great that you can have that mm. that connection. I think. It's having really tangible results then. Well, you know, you always hope that you'll inspire people. And, um, you know, I've been making programmes for 30 years. As I say, I've done more than 100 documentaries. And, and, you know, I often still get letters from people saying, oh, well, I started doing history because of seeing them, you know, and stuff like that. So you always hope that your programmes will entertain and inform, believing the, in the old public service remit of the BBC, which we must do, otherwise there's no point in the licence fee. Um, but... Um, you know, if people are entertained and informed sufficiently to, for it to inspire them to want to study the subject or go further or just take a part in the life of their community in, a, in this way, you know, as, a, as looking at their past. Because the past gives meaning to the present and gives value to the present, you see. That's the crucial thing. And Britain has gone through a very, uh, you know, quite heavy times since the 1950s with the decline of heavy industry. We've been filming in... Um, you know, Corby, 
and the govern and the black country and we, yesterday we were in the Stoke-on-Trent in the potteries you know and these are iconic areas in our history uh, that when we were the workshop of the world that have all been very heavily hit and they're having to re rebuild and that involves looking again at the history and the remarkable thing is when you look at something like the Govan Reminiscence Group in Scotland is how powerfully history can contribute towards a sense of uh, value in life and the community. That was Michael Woods. Episode 1 of The Great British Story will be broadcast on BBC Two in May. Sign up to our weekly TV highlights newsletter at historyextra.com slash newsletter for more info on that. Michael is also featured in the May issue of BBC History magazine. Now, from ordinary people to royalty, we will soon be gearing up to commemorate the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II across the UK. In our recognition of that, the last of our BBC History magazine Tower of London lecture series brings together two historians to discuss the reigns of the two Elizabeths, the Tudor Elizabeth I and the current Elizabeth II. Anna Whitelock and Kate Williams will be considering their lives and queenships. The event is on 14 June, and if you want to come along, a limited number of tickets are still available. Go to historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture for more. That's it for this week. We'll be back once more into the breach next week with the War of 1812 and World Heritage Sites. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon and Apple Newsstand websites, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>